Drabblecast B-Sides, episode 55, The Lonely Child, by Sharon Dodge. Sharon's been previously published in Electric Spec and has a story upcoming in the horror podcast, Pseudopod. She's also in the process of pulling together a home site on Tumblr, SharonDodge.tumblr.com, working on three novels and doing the usual work thing while toddler juggling. She's a great believer in caffeine. So without further ado, we bring you The Lonely Child by Sharon Dodge. Something pricked Marla's hand. Groggily, very much so, she turned over in bed and spoke to her husband. John, Marla whispered, trying to keep the irritation out of her voice. Turn on the light. There's a pin in the bed. What? Her husband rolled over in the dark, and she felt his elbow bump into her leg. John, there's a needle in the bed. With your baby. Turn on the light. Her words were firm. John got up and turned on the light, looking at her unsteadily. The baby still slept in the middle of the king-sized bed, just a month old. She looked painfully small in the sea of sheets. She sighed quietly, and both parents froze, not breathing until the soft, steady rhythm of her breath began again. "'Why is there a needle in bed?' asked John. "'I don't know if it's a needle,' Marla said. "'But something sharp pricked me, and if it got me, it could get her. Now help me look.' John saw the wisdom of this, and he began to look. But twenty minutes later, even Marla gave up with an exasperated, though muted, huff of frustration. "'Are you sure you didn't imagine it?' Marla narrowed her eyes at John, and he glared back at her through equally narrowed eyes. "'I just meant you might have been dreaming,' he snipped. "'I wasn't dreaming. Look,' Marla whispered in return, holding out her hand. "'I bled a little. You can see.' And she had. A tiny dot of red stood out on the side of her left hand. "'Maybe it was a sticker,' John said. "'Tracked it in. Or a splinter. I don't know.' "'No,' Marla murmured. "'I don't see it now, either.' She settled back down next to the baby, who slept miraculously through it all. John curled in on the other side, rearranging the blankets. She'll be fine. You can tuck the blanket in under her, just in case. Yes, Marla said. She was already half asleep. Did you ever find the pin? John asked two days later, over a bleary breakfast. What? Marla asked, looking up from the baby. She was nursing at the table, occasionally sneaking a bite of toast or a cautious sip of lukewarm tea. The pin, John said, or the needle, in bed. Oh, no. I shook the sheets outside, though, and put on a fresh set. Checked the mattress, too. Should be fine. Hmm. I didn't imagine it. Of course not, John said. I'll be just around the corner, he added. If you need me, just call and I'll be back. Thank you, dear, Marla said. The day went by haphazardly, as days do with babies. A sea of diapers and wipes and eggs eaten out of the pan while the baby slept. Marla's crowning achievement was the single load of laundry she managed. When John came home, he roasted a chicken with root vegetables, which they were almost, but not quite, too tired to eat. 
They'd almost put away the last of the vegetables when Marla choked back a scream and dropped a plate, which landed loudly on the counter. She put a hand to her mouth and pointed, and John looked and saw something skitter, something dark around the corner. The merest flash of a long, thin, dark brown claw, something reminiscent of a cockroach, a beetle, a thick, slowly buzzing fly, was just barely visible in the thin kitchen light before it vanished around the corner. John and Marla looked at one another, and as one they raced for the baby, one to the left and the other to the right, each rounding out of the kitchen to the baby's room on the other side of the hall. Even as they raced, they could hear something scratching in the baby's room, and Marla got to the room just ahead of John, screaming and grabbing the baby. "'Get it out!' she screamed. "'Get it out!' Where? John asked, looking around frantically. Where did it go? In the baby, Marla screamed. It's in the baby, John. John stopped at that, eyes slamming still from their frantic search around the room. In the baby, he said dully. In the baby, Marla said sickly. She held their girl in front of them at arm's length. The baby flopped oddly. Any other time, and John would have screamed with horror at her unsupported head, the lack of warmth with which his wife held her. Now he just said, The baby. After a moment, he took the baby from his wife and set her on the rocker, a squishy, comfortable affair that supported a baby or a bottom with equal comfort on three sides. He looked at her. He didn't see any difference. The only thing he saw, in fact, was his daughter looking at him glumly, though surprisingly without any exceptional audio level at having been woken. A vague sort of smile passed her face, and he wondered what had caused it. "'Sweetheart, I think you haven't slept enough,' John finally said. Marla looked at him like he was the one who was crazy and left the room. Marla refused to breastfeed after that, almost refused to touch the baby. John called out sick for three days straight and narrowly convinced Marla to pump in the interest of their child.' Even if you're afraid of what's in her, you've got to be brave, John pleaded. She doesn't understand why you won't hold her. That thing is in her, Marla whispered. I can't touch her. We have to get it out of her, John. Better she dies than that thing is in her. John called their doctor and asked about postpartum depression. He asked if hallucinations were part of it, too, and when he felt the doctor's paws turn thick, he said he wondered because he was seeing his golf time disappear, and the doctor laughed. Then John said his mother-in-law would be in town next week, though Marla's mother had died two years before, and that he was sure she'd be fine. John finally went back to work, and after almost a week, sick of the pumping machine and feeling like a goddamn cow, Marla returned to nursing the baby. Things began to feel like normal, although Marla no longer napped with the baby, and sometimes she would get a look on her face, and John would take the baby to another room and tell her over and over that her mother loved her. Two weeks passed. The baby slept nights, full nights now. Her appetite was strong, her growth prodigious, her nature affectionate, and even Marla had began to soften. 
She smiled when she spoke of the baby, and John's friends all told him that was how it was with the baby blues. He didn't tell them about the claw he'd seen, or what Marla thought, or much of anything. He was too busy. Marla, for her part, tried to make John worry less. She tried to look at the perfect curls on her daughter's head and petted them in John's view. Only then she would see her round stomach, and she would be sick with the fear of what was in it, and she would have to look away. She would nurse her and love the feel of her little girl, the smell of her, the weight of her, and then she would wonder how much weight was her daughter, and how much the thing inside her, and she would have to close her eyes against it. She wanted to talk to John about it, but John was beginning to look at her with the same kind of fear that she felt, so she didn't. Instead, she tried very hard to love her daughter, always in the sight of John. Sometimes, during the day when John was gone, when the baby slept, she would put her head right up against the baby's stomach, and she would whisper, I know you're in there, I know you are, and I'll get you out. I'll make you come out. And then, one day, she did. John was in the other room, and Marla was changing the baby's diaper. Since she had seen the thing, she had never given it a name. It had become a task she dreaded, no matter how many, many times a day she did it. She kept expecting to see something. But as the days had passed, she had come to a certain conclusion. If the thing wouldn't come out, she would have to make it come out. And that was where it was. She couldn't risk a hospital, couldn't risk what they'd do to her daughter. But she could risk this, she thought. So she was not entirely unprepared when, as she was changing her diaper, the claw struck out. It was so utterly casual that for a moment Marla simply blinked. It lay protruding from her child, and her daughter seemed woefully ignorant of the thing as it gently tapped the changing pad in a sort of practiced way. Only a small portion, the merest tip, but then it reached further. So quickly, Marla seized on it and pulled. It made a terrible sound, whatever it was, and with a wrench and a bit of blood, it came out, and then the baby started to cry, and then the creature ran, jumping down and scuttling across the room. Marla put her daughter in her crib and raced away, trailing the thing with its skittering on the tiles inevitably leading her to it, and with a merry, vicious crack, Marla landed the bucket on it that she'd left out for days in the kitchen on the pretense of the sometime mopping she would do tomorrow. It rattled about in the bucket, shadowing its translucent sides. Rattle, rattle, rattle. She put a pile of books on top and went back to her daughter, crying. John returned to a house in chaos that night. Marla had already told him when he'd called earlier to come home quickly that the baby wouldn't stop crying. Since he'd called in sick, his superiors had eyed him somewhat suspiciously, and so John had stayed, eyeing the clock nervously, and as soon as it hit five o'clock, he raced out the door, not even turning off his computer, and he was home not five minutes later. "'Where were you?' said Marla. "'Good God, I said hurry!' 
I'm sorry, John said. I couldn't leave earlier. I told you they didn't really believe I was sick. What's wrong with her? Is she sick? If you'd said she was sick, I would have come home earlier. It's under the bucket, she said. Maybe if we kill it, she'll be better. John blinked and almost asked to take the baby, but for the first time in ages, Marla was actively cuddling the child, kissing it and loving it and humming little lullabies. And so he waited, and he went into the kitchen where he saw the bucket upside down, and he lifted the bucket and saw it. It was darker than the flash of leg he remembered, almost black, and it seemed composed almost entirely of a head and legs, a swirling monstrosity of a tiny, bulbous head that had no eyes or ears or anything he recognized, but seemed itself a kind of wet-looking beetle with long, spiny, nasty-pointing legs that he thought could not possibly have been inside the baby, because they would have pierced it. But at that, the legs suddenly sucked back into the head, and then a dozen more sprang out, and it moved, and John slammed the bucket down. Holy mother of God, he swore, and Marla said absently around a lullaby, Yes. It took them a while to decide on a method of destruction, but they turned on a pot of water to boil, and John got a hammer. They decided to go with the direct approach of smashing it, but failing that, they would try the water. In the meantime, their daughter cried harder and harder, great hiccuping sobs that shook her whole body. "'Has she eaten at all?' John asked finally, hammer in hand as they stood over the bucket. "'Not since it came out,' she said." John nodded seriously, confirmed the water was on to boil, and lifted the bucket. At that, three things happened very quickly. The thing screamed, the baby screamed, and then the baby stopped breathing. For a moment, Marla and John stopped breathing too. Marla thought about screaming, but instead they looked at one another, and they came to the exact same conclusion. John put the hammer down, and the thing stopped screaming, and the baby did nothing. Marla raced back to the baby's bedroom, where she lay it on the ground and began to do infant, resuscita infant resuscitation, and John followed, and so did the thing. She felt it behind her, watching, and so did John. He stood there, hammer in hand, between them as Marla tried grimly, tearlessly, to make her daughter breathe. She counted the hand pumps over and over, and the breaths into her daughter, and the thing watched, and John stood, and nothing happened. No breath, no life, nothing. Let it go, she said, finally, and John stepped back, and the creature ran across the floor, oddly with grace, and flung itself into their daughter's diaper. Marla vomited. John slammed their hammer into the wall, and then their baby began to breathe. John repaired the wall and put the hammer away. Marla put the baby in her crib and cleaned the floor and put the bucket away, and for a while, a long while, neither of them spoke. 
Marla stopped taking naps in the day. She never said that she didn't want to be asleep alone with a thing, but then she didn't need to. John didn't hold the baby as much as he used to. Marla went back to her six-week checkup, hers and the baby's, and came back with the pediatrician's glowing notes on the baby, so healthy, so ahead on her milestones, so big, so cheerful, and did not speak of her own diagnosis, or the pills she'd picked up which she knew she would not take. Inevitably, however, John's mother came and visited, and she cooked while she stayed, because that was what she did, and the three of them would sit down to eat in great relief, something more than eggs in the pan, and their visitor would hold the baby without any reluctance whatsoever, and Marla began to look on with pangs of jealousy that grew and grew. In the way of babies, every day was endless, and the weeks disappeared in a kind of memoryless wash, so that Tuesday was Thursday, and Wednesday Sunday, and despite calendars and clocks, and the sun rising and setting, it was difficult to remember which was which. And somewhere in there, John found he had to stay at work late, and found he was busy cleaning out the garage, and that he had so many things to do other than be around the baby. Soon after, he stopped offering to hold the baby, only taking her when Marla gave her to him. And Marla found she didn't mind so much, that she had time to give the baby kisses and cuddles and blow little raspberries on her cheeks and her arms and even on her chest. She found she loved the smell of her daughter, so much so when she was away from her, briefly, ever so briefly, when John could be prevailed upon to watch her for a half hour, she would sometimes stop to smell a blanket of her daughter's and inhale the mysterious scent that is a newborn child. Human microbiome, Marla said one evening. What? John said. Human microbiome. It's what they call the body, all the things that live inside us. We've so much bacteria in us, so much flora and fauna. It's called the human microbiome. She stumbled a little on the last word. John raised an eyebrow. Everyone says how lucky we are, how big and strong she is. And you know when it was, when it wasn't in there. The words hung, and neither of them finished the sentence. John nodded, but that was that. And John went home each night, and each night the smell of his home sickened him. Not that it was bad, exactly, with the scent of baby lotion and sunflowers and, yes, a hint of buttermilk diaper in the air, but that it was home. Knowing it was home, knowing that scent meant home, his stomach turned, because he knew that at home it was in his child, and he couldn't get it out. He went home, and he wished he didn't wish it, that there was nothing to wish away, and he wished he'd never had a child, because then none of this would have ever happened, and then he wished himself away, because it was too terrible a thought. He was so successful in his wishing that one night 
He did not come home at all, and he did not come in the door to hear the gentle laughter of his wife, and he did not smell the scents of the house, redolent with flowers and overlaid with a slowly cooking pot roast, and he did not see the smile on Marla's face as she kissed her daughter's face a dozen times. But most importantly, he did not, today, as he had the night before, did not hear his wife curl up in bed with his daughter, curl around her like a comma around a little period, did not see her wrap her arms gently around the punctuation of his daughter, and did not hear the gentle, rolling purr issuing from his daughter's belly. John saw none of this far away where he was, and Marla happily did not see his absence as her belly sang in happy harmony with her child. This story was brought to you by Drabblecast Productions. Special thanks to our episode artist, Melissa McClanahan. Melissa arts and designs out of Cincinnati, Ohio, where she lives with her long-suffering husband and evil kitty overlord. You can find her work at www.liminalworks.net. And special thanks to you, the Drabblecast B-Side subscriber, for supporting the Drabblecast and allowing us to do what we do. 